When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Fort Collins, Colorado. Located about an hour north of Denver, Fort Collins is the last city in Colorado before you cross the border into Wyoming. FOCO, as the locals call it. Oh, that's like Jomo. Exactly. Joplin, Missouri. (laughs) Episode four, Jomo. FOCO was named after the Army outpost founded there in 1864 and decommissioned three years later. And the location of the old fort is now the popular downtown area. Fort Collins is a gateway city to the Rocky Mountain National Park and is known for being a hub for Colorado's top craft breweries. For the last 25 years, the city has had a program to promote art in public places with glimpses of colorful artwork across the city, adding to the town's personality. But in 1987, this bright and charming city darkened with the brutal death of one young woman. In 1987, Peggy Ketrick was 37 years old and shared an apartment with a roommate in Fort Collins, Colorado. Peggy was petite, about five foot two, and weighed about 110 pounds. Same. She was <laughs> Me too. Peggy was described by friends as being fun-loving, artistic, and well-traveled. In her apartment, she had shelves filled with books and was even writing her own novel about diamond smugglers. Peggy worked in the lingerie department of a store called The Fashion Bar. This was a very popular store in Colorado, having first opened in 1933, and 55 years later, it actually had 83 stores across the state. On Thursday, February 10, 1987, after getting off work that night, Peggy headed to the Prime Minister Pub and Grill, which was about a half a mile from her apartment, and drank vodka tonics at the bar and smoked her Merit cigarettes. Peggy was seen leaving the Prime Minister about 1.30 a.m. that night, telling everybody that she was heading home after having seen her boyfriend with another woman. Just a few hours later, in the early morning hours of Friday, February 11th, Peggy's body was found in an open field by a bicyclist who was on his way to work. He immediately called police and told them he thought it was a mannequin until he got closer to the body. Peggy had been stabbed in the back and parts of her body had been mutilated. There were also distinctive scratch marks on Peggy's face. The Larimer County coroner determined that Peggy had been stabbed in the back by a serrated knife with a five-inch blade. The knife lacerated her left lung and left pulmonary artery, resulting in massive blood loss. She likely died within minutes of the attack. On the curb of the street adjacent to the field where Peggy's body was found, the police discovered a large pool of blood with a half-smoked cigarette, later determined to have been Peggy's, lying in the middle of the blood. This, along with other evidence, led investigators to believe that the knife wound in the victim's back was caused by a surprise attack from behind at the location of the blood pool on the street curb. 
After delivering the fatal wound, a bloody trail indicated that the attacker dragged Peggy's body more than 100 feet into the field where she was found. Her purse was still on her shoulder, and it did not appear to police that anything had been taken from the purse. Peggy was still wearing all of her jewelry as well. This reminded investigators of the Black Dahlia because the Black Dahlia in Los Angeles had been bisected. So basically, at the area of the Black Dahlia's spine, it was bisected with such precision that the investigators thought perhaps a doctor was involved. Well, and I think there were some other excisions on her body as well that led police, especially in 1947, to know that this wasn't something someone could have picked up in a book. They had to have been trained to have done this. Correct. It was done with skill and precision. So not only had Peggy's body been partially disrobed and positioned with her legs slightly apart and her arms over her head, her right breast and pubic area were exposed. The left nipple and a portion of Peggy's genitalia had been excised with a very sharp instrument, possibly a scalpel. Clyde Masters lived with his 15-year-old son, Timothy, who went by Tim, in a trailer near the field. Mr. Masters spoke to police that morning and told them that he thought his son had seen a mannequin in the field before he left for school. Homicide detectives went to Fort Collins High School to talk to Tim and took him out of class to question him and ask why he didn't call the police if he'd seen a body. Tim told the detectives that he had seen a body as he was walking to catch the school bus that morning, but he hadn't reported it. Tim's mother had died four years earlier, almost to the day, and he assumed somebody had placed a mannequin in the field outside of his house as a prank, and he didn't want to be made fun of. What a nightmare. I mean, if, if if that's the thought that enters your mind, it means that you're made fun of a lot. The morning after police questioned Tim at his school, the police also conducted consensual searches of Tim's bedroom, locker, and backpack. In Tim's bedroom, police found a large collection of knives and swords. The collection included six survival knives with long blades, one of which had a hollow handle containing a scalpel. The police also found a suitcase containing pornographic photographs of female genitalia and a large number of writings and drawings done by Tim. Some of these depicted surprise attacks, gruesome death scenes, and scenes of violence and sex. Some of the drawings depicted persons with scratches across their cheeks with pools of blood surrounding them, and there were scenes of torture, cutting of body parts, and depictions of survival knives with long blades. In his backpack and locker, police discovered more writings and drawings produced by him, including two maps of the crime scene. In all, police seized approximately 2,200 pages of material. In addition to Tim's written material and unusual behavior on the morning after the murder, a significant amount of other evidence pointed to him as the killer. First, there were several similarities between Tim's mother and Peggy Hetrick. Peggy Hetrick was killed almost exactly four years to the day Tim's mother had died. The memory of his mother's death was apparently still fresh in his mind. Two Mother's Day cards made by Tim when his mother was still alive were found in his backpack on the day after Peggy's murder. A photocopy of his mother's death certificate was found in the kitchen of his residence. According to police, Peggy, like his mother, had long, wavy red hair. Tim admitted that, although he didn't know Peggy by name, he might have seen her around the neighborhood. One particular drawing found in Tim's backpack the day after Peggy's body was found 
aroused suspicion from the police. The drawing depicted a person dragging the body of another by the armpits. Blood dripped from the back of the body as it was dragged, leaving a bloody trail. This is exactly how investigators concluded that Peggy was moved from the street to the field. So Peggy was only 110 pounds, Mm -hmm. but Tim was only 115, and 100 feet is a long way. A detective asked Tim whether he had ever thought about committing this type of murder, and Tim responded that he had. The nature of the wound on Peggy's breast suggested that the perpetrator was left-handed, and Tim was left-handed. Tim had the specialized weapons necessary to commit the crime, according to police. The wounds inflicted on Peggy required two weapons, a serrated knife with a blade at least five inches in length and a precise cutting instrument such as a scalpel. The former was used to inflict the deadly injury, that would be the stab to the back, and the latter to carry out the subsequent mutilation. And probably the most incriminating of all was that Tim showed he had familiarity with the specific details of the crime. First, he told the detectives he thought the victim was wearing pink shoes. In fact, Peggy was not wearing pink shoes, but her socks were pink. And since her pants had been pulled down, her socks would not have been visible to somebody merely walking by the crime scene. In another interview with law enforcement, Tim was asked if he had any suggestions concerning the investigation. According to police, Tim suggested that the detectives canvas a ditch near a particular bridge. Six months later, a survival knife with a serrated blade and hollow handle was found in the same ditch Tim referenced. However, despite all of this circumstantial evidence, detectives did not have any physical evidence that linked Tim to the murder of Peggy Hetrick. Although, as we said earlier, police found a large pool of blood on the curb where Peggy was likely killed, none of her blood was found on any of Tim's knives or clothing. Police had also administered a lie detector test when they had interrogated the 15-year-old, and the results were inconclusive. Without any direct evidence, he was not immediately charged. And after high school, Tim joined the U.S. Navy. Police stayed focused on Tim Masters as the killer. With no new leads, the police consulted with the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, although no profile of Tim was created. After consulting with the FBI, Fort Collins police investigators planted an article containing false information in the local newspaper a year after Peggy Hetrick's murder in an attempt to provoke an incriminating reaction from Tim Masters. This was the one-year anniversary of Peggy Hetrick being killed, as well as the five-year anniversary of Tim's mother's death, and police were convinced that Tim would act out violently on a female victim. So, Kath, I didn't see the article. Do you have any idea what, like, what was the falsehood they planted? Do you know? That they were super close to making an arrest in the case and that they had found all the evidence they needed to be able to do so. So did you read the original article or did you just read about it? I read about it because that's been removed from archives. Oh, interesting. Okay. The journalist didn't say if an editor had known. I don't know if she actually even knew that or not. The point was, based on the conversation with the FBI, is they truly believed that Tim Masters was going to come apart at the seams and would strike out. Like the whole thing was just designed to 
provoke a reaction. It was. And in fact, this is an article in the newspaper and they didn't know if Tim Masters read the newspaper. Mm -hmm. So they took a copy of the article. When you say they. The police. Okay. They took the article that they had cut out of the newspaper, a picture of Peggy Hetrick, and the obituary from his mother, folded it up in an envelope, and put it under the windshield wiper of his car. Wow. So they were absolutely trying to provoke something. Not super subtle. Yeah, not at all. Police even went so far as to stake out the field where Peggy was killed, as well as Tim's mother's grave, convinced that he would go to one of these sites. Tim unknowingly had around-the-clock police surveillance, and it elicited no reaction from him. As time went on, and police continued to contact him through high school and his years in the Navy, Tim proclaimed his innocence. According to a 2020 article in Law Week Colorado by Jess Brovsky-Eaker, Five years after Peggy Hetrick's murder, investigators interviewed Tim Masters' former high school classmates and discovered Tim had told them details about the fact that a nipple had been excised. And this is a detail that investigators believed only the killer would know. As a result of this information, homicide detectives spoke with Tim again, who, as we said, had enlisted in the Navy at this point. Tim was interviewed in Philadelphia where he was stationed, and he told detectives that he had heard details from another classmate who had been a member of a group of Explorer Scouts that had helped the police in searching the crime scene for evidence. Okay, what I read was that this field was large. Fort Collins is a medium-sized city, and they didn't have the police force to be able to search the entire field the way they needed to, so they brought in members of the Sheriff's Department. It still wasn't enough, so they brought in high school explorer scouts looking for the left nipple. Like they told the kids, this is what you're looking for. Well, yeah, because how else would they know what to look for? But can you imagine? No, high school kids. Could you imagine doing that today? No, no. High school boys. No. It is crazy to think that high schoolers were asked to be part of a grid search. I'm sure that's what it was. It was probably a grid search. It it absolutely was. And that's bad enough, except for it makes it just worse for what they were looking for. Yeah. Oh, totally. So anyway, Tim tells the detectives this, that, hey, like I found it out from my friend. So the detectives interview the former classmate after speaking with Tim and he corroborated Tim's story. Wow. Yeah. According to court documents in 1997, so 10 years after Peggy's murder, The Fort Collins Police Department retained Dr. Reed Malloy, a forensic psychologist and expert in sexual homicide, as a consultant on the case. Okay, just to be irreverent for a second. Sure. So, Because it's so unlike you. Go ahead. I know it is. Well, it's not even irreverent, but when Nick at Night started running Adam-12, I love Adam-12. And one was Officer Reed, and the other was Sergeant Malloy. Oh. Isn't that funny? So I used I'm... to love one Adam 12. One Adam 12. One exactly. Adam 12. I used to love that. But I wonder if his parents were fans. And do and you remember? It was... <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Who comes up with a name like Reed Malloy unless they're watching, you know, all these police That's shows? That's a really good point. 
Thank you. Yeah, and Go it was ahead. it was it was back to back with ER. Not, was it no, not, it was not, emergency. Emergency. That's I what it was like called. Like emergency. <gasps> My sister did. How I didn't like it. How could you not love Nurse Dixie and that hot doctor? Oh no, with, hot doctors with the sideburns. No hot doctors. <laughs> oh, okay, I've already asked you once not to do that again. <laughs> Please don't do that. Okay, well I loved emergency and the doctor was hot. Anyway, you're wrong. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> After reviewing the evidence police gathered, including all of Tim's drawings and writings taken from his bedroom, backpack, and locker, Dr. Malloy prepared a report implicating Tim Masters in the death of Peggy Hetrick. Dr. Malloy concluded that the crime was a displaced sexual matricide that arose from Tim's feelings of abandonment caused by the death of his mother four years prior to Peggy's death. The following year, so 11 years after Peggy Hetrick's murder, and based upon Dr. Malloy's conclusions and the numerous writings and drawings, the statements made during the interview, and having seen the body and not reporting it, on August 10th, 1998, Police arrested Tim at his home in Ridgecrest, California, where Tim had moved after being honorably discharged from the Navy. He had served eight years. One year after Tim's arrest, trial began on March 20th, 1999, with the prosecution relying heavily on Dr. Malloy's testimony. Dr. Malloy testified about the characteristics of sexual homicides and the behavior and motivation of individuals who commit them. He focused on the fantasy life of Tim Masters, as depicted in the drawings that he had done in high school. The prosecution used Dr. Malloy to explain an otherwise inexplicable act of random violence. 1,000 pieces of Tim Masters' written material were admitted into evidence. The drawings were graphic and repulsive, and indicated a deep fascination with death, specifically death by stabbing. Dr. Malloy testified that much of the violence was associated with sexual overtones and hatred of women. The prosecution also focused on the admission by Tim Masters on having thoughts of committing this type of murder. The belief that the killer was left-handed, the collection of cutting instruments, and Tim's belief that Peggy was wearing pink shoes. Even all of these years later, the prosecution still did not have any evidence connecting Tim to the murder scene. On March 25, 1999, six days after trial began, Tim Masters was found guilty by a jury after 10 hours of deliberation and sentenced to life in prison. The following year, Tim Masters appealed his conviction to the Colorado Court of Appeals on the grounds that his drawings and much of Dr. Malloy's testimony should not have been admitted because it was improper character evidence. Okay, so Kath, in a criminal case, you cannot admit character evidence to show that somebody acted in conformity with it and committed a crime. So in other words, if, if I'm the guy who robs a liquor store, somebody cannot take the stand and say, oh my God, Kathy is a horrible person. She always lies. She sleeps in late. She's super lazy. <laughs> and she forced her friends to go to liquor stores when they shouldn't have. And they lied to their mom. Exactly. And she's a bad influence. And therefore, Kathy committed the crime. That's right. Like that? Okay. Yeah, exactly. All that character evidence is not admissible. But the judge in this case was like, hey, Dr. Malloy testified about a bunch of stuff 
but he still allowed the jurors to conclude the ultimate issues of fact. So the jurors are the fact finders, as you know, and he never said anything specific like, I think the defendant did it or the defendant likely did it or anything like that. He allowed them to come to the factual determination of guilt. Assuming, of course, that that's what the jury is doing and not listening to what this man is saying to let it influence their thoughts. Oh, I'm, I'm virtually certain it had a huge impact. The Colorado Court of Appeals disagreed with Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> And held that Dr. Malloy was an expert and the trial court did not abuse its discretion in allowing his testimony because, as a qualified forensic psychologist, he had special expertise in motivation and behavior of individuals committing sexual homicides and his expertise was helpful to the jurors. The Court of Appeals unanimously upheld Tim Masters' conviction on February 15, 2001, two years after he'd been convicted in the murder of Peggy Hetrick. In 2002, Tim's appeal was heard by the Colorado Supreme Court, which found some evidence should not have been admitted, but that the error was harmless. However, it was a close vote. By a vote of four to three, the Colorado Supreme Court denied the petition to rehear Tim Masters' case. Just as a side note on that, there was a pretty significant dissent. As you said, it was a close vote, 4-3. And the dissenting opinion basically said, hey, look, You had a thousand documents, literally a thousand documents presented to the jury, admitted into evidence, but the prosecution only referred to 140 of them. And a lot of the evidence was things that Tim had written that were racist or things that he had written that were sexual, incredibly disgusting things he had drawn. And the dissenting opinion in the Supreme Court was basically, hey, look, We want to be sure that the jury didn't try him on his character rather than trying him on the facts of the murder. Well, and just from a bystander looking at it, as you've talked about, there doesn't have to be physical evidence to convict somebody. And sometimes circumstantial evidence is more than enough. We're too much into the TV shows that show us, oh, look, totally. They have all this DNA or whatever. And this person's 100 percent the killer. But in this case... So while they had no physical evidence, despite the doctor's testimony, they did have a significant amount of circumstantial evidence. Correct. Which is exactly why, like you said, the Supreme Court said it was harmless. Right. You know, a couple things, maybe they should have been excluded, but it's harmless. Tim Masters again appealed his conviction in 2004. This is now five years after his original conviction, contending that he had ineffective counsel. As a result, the state appointed him a new defense team. Exactly. He wanted a new trial. That's what he was trying to get. The defense team now included two attorneys, Maria Liu and David Wymore. Wymore was considered to be one of Colorado's best trial lawyers and had been the capital defense leader for the Colorado public defender system for many years. So here we are 17 years after Peggy Hetrick is murdered and the defendant has two new attorneys appointed to him. And of course, there's going to be new lawyers on the prosecution side. So the prosecutors who did the original trial have long moved on. So apparently during the court hearings for the appeal, prosecutors would reference evidence that was never part of the defense file. Wow. Yeah. So the prosecutors would reference evidence and and the defense attorneys would be like, what are you talking about? And so it became evident that the defense never had a full and complete picture of the situation. This is why people hate government. 
Amen, sister. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. According to a March 2007 article in the Fort Collins, Coloradoan, journalist Jason Casina pointed out that among the items that were never turned over were DNA samples for independent testing. So I have seen nothing whatsoever that any DNA testing was done for the original trial. However, during the time the appeal was pending, and specifically in November of 2006, the district attorney's office sent blood evidence to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation for testing. This DNA evidence was apparently from blood, and we assume, although I do not know, that it was part of clothing, and it was a small amount of blood. And I guess the defense and the prosecution during the appeal had the agreement like, hey, you get half, I get half, blah, blah, blah. 
But when the prosecution sent it off to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, they either used it all or claimed that the other half had disintegrated. So the defense did not get to test this particular blood item to see if it was Tim Masters' blood. The defense team had uncovered evidence of another possible suspect in the case when the trial began in 1999. This was another main reason behind Tim Masters' request for a new trial. The defense team believed that Dr. Richard Hammond should have been looked at more closely as a viable suspect in Peggy Hetrick's murder. Court filings said that despite Hammond fitting the Fort Collins police profile of the suspected killer, and despite many police detectives believing that Hammond should have been carefully investigated, the defense team wasn't provided with any discovery or any information that showed Hammond had been looked at. In 1995, so this is eight years after Peggy had been murdered, but three years before Tim Masters was arrested for the murder, Richard Hammond, whose home was about 100 yards from the murder scene, was arrested for voyeurism. Hammond had been found secretly filming female guests and family members in a bathroom at his home, having hidden a video camera behind fake ventilation grates. A college student who was house-sitting while the Hammond family was on vacation had called police after finding the camera in a vent in the bathroom. I read that she had heard the shutter clicking over and over and over again. Oh, the camera shutter. The cutter, camera shutter. And so that's what actually had her call police. Good for her. Whoever she How old was she? Do you know? It just said she was a college student. So let's, you know, 18 to 22. Good for her. When police searched the house, they discovered an elaborate filming setup that had wires that went into a secret room where detectives found what they described as a meticulously arranged pornography collection that included more than 300 homemade videotapes. So kind of like yours. (laughs) Cute. (laughs) Hammond's extensive collection of pornography showed an obsession with female genitalia. They also discovered that Hammond was mailing the videos to Germany and the Netherlands, both countries that were known for being widespread in their porn distribution. As we had mentioned, police initially suspected the killer of Peggy Hetrick had surgical training based on the mutilation to her body. Richard Hammond? was an eye surgeon. Fort Collins police investigator Tony Sanchez, who was a 28-year veteran of the department, admitted during questioning by defense attorneys that none of the videos were checked to see if Peggy Hetrick appeared in any of them. Sanchez also confirmed during questioning that when Hammond and his family returned from vacation the next day, his attorney worked out a deal with then-Chief Deputy District Attorney Terry Gilmore. Gilmore was one of the prosecutors in Tim Masters' original trial in 1999. Gilmore allowed Hammond to turn himself in without being handcuffed, released him on a personal recognizance bond without going before a judge, and then allowed him to be sent to a behavior health care facility for three days for evaluation. Two days after leaving the behavior health center, Richard Hammond committed suicide. Tim Masters' appellate defense team alleged that the police did not look hard enough into Hammond's secret life, which included secret credit cards, a possible fake name, and a secret Denver residence where Hammond taped sexual encounters with another woman. The appellate attorneys also found out that Dr. Hammond was actually friends with Gilmore and their wives attended the same church. Gilmore never disclosed his connection to Dr. Hammond, never revealed to the defense that there was another viable suspect, and... Gilmore never recused himself. That's so unethical. That's crazy. 
The consistent theme of the appeal was the prosecution's manipulation of evidence and the failure to provide the defense with evidence that could point to the innocence of the defendant, otherwise known as exculpatory evidence. (laughs) I could be an attorney. You you get an A. (laughs) Am I ready for my attorney license? Exactly. After this podcast is done, you could probably pass the bar. (laughs) Well, if Kim Kardashian can. The consistent theme of the appeal was the prosecution's manipulation of evidence and the failure to provide the defense with evidence that could point to the innocence of the defendant. In addition to seeking a new trial, Tim's attorneys also asked that every judge in the 8th Judicial District where the original trial took place, as well as the district attorney's office there, be disqualified. This is because the two original prosecutors, Terrence Gilmore and Jolene Blair, had become judges in the 8th Judicial District, and their friendship with other judges and the current prosecution team created a conflict of interest. So basically, the defense was saying, I want this entire county's trial court judges and prosecutors and prosecutors conflicted out. Now, what's interesting, too, coincidence or not, one year after Tim Masters was convicted in 1999, Mm -hmm. the two judges that were included, Terrence Gilmore, we know him from Dr. Hammond Friendship, and Jolene Blair, they were both elected to the 8th Judicial Court, having run to be a judge on the conviction of Tim Masters. So basically, the two prosecutors became judges off his conviction. Exactly. Got it. One month after the defense attorneys filed this motion, the prosecutor and a senior judge from a nearby county agreed to handle the case until it was determined whether a new trial would be held. Four months later, there was a delay in going forward with the appeal because Tim Masters' attorney, David Wymore, had discovered that evidence had gone missing. Key pieces of evidence that were still being searched for included two unidentified hairs collected from Peggy Hetrick's boot and sock, as well as 13 fingerprints taken from the purse that Peggy was wearing on her shoulder and a DNA sample from Peggy's clothing. So I'm assuming, Kathy, that this DNA sample is from what we were speaking about before in 2006, where the prosecutors had sent a DNA sample to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation the one where all of it was either used or disintegrated. And I'm sure the defense was never given a report from what they found. Right. I I believe that is the case. I have no idea how they became aware of fingerprints on the purse and the hair samples. Right. In an article in the Fort Collins, Colorado, newspaper on August 24th, 2007, journalist Kevin Darst wrote that at a hearing on these issues the day before, It was revealed that police had destroyed all of the evidence related to Dr. Richard Hammond's arrest several months after Hammond committed suicide. Remember, Dr. Hammond is the person who was a potential suspect because he had been arrested for voyeurism. But even though the prosecution knew about it and was friends with him, they never revealed this to the defense. And as we know, the prosecutor, the original prosecutor, Gilmore, knew Dr. Hammond socially. And police said that the destruction of the evidence was done with the approval of Gilmore. And this was outside of the custom and practice 
of the normal evidence destruction. First of all, it was sooner than they normally would have allowed evidence to be destroyed, and it was destroyed in a way that was not typical. Like, they typically buried their evidence. Isn't that bizarre? Yes. Yeah. They buried evidence in the ground. Yeah. That's it, really weird. But, I know. I thought it was odd, too, but hey. But I got to tell you, after everything we've heard now, this really doesn't surprise me that Gilmore did this. On January 3rd, 2008, journalist Trevor Hughes wrote in the Fort Collins, Coloradoan, that Tim Masters' bid for a new trial had received a significant boost when the prosecutors for the appeal admitted that at least four critical pieces of information weren't turned over to the original defense team. The prosecutor said that Tim Masters' 1999 defense team was not given information about police consultations with two experts, both of whom disagreed with the police theory of the case. In addition, a 274-page analysis of the case by a third expert and information about an elaborate surveillance operation was not provided as required. Prosecutors for the appeal also said that the four violations were what they had found to date, suggesting there might be additional instances. I can't imagine these prosecutors are assigned this case and they basically open the case file so they have fresh eyes, fresh attitude, and along the steps they're realizing, wow, the original This wasn't done right. This wasn't done right. This was not done according to ethical standards. Wow. On January 18th, 2008, so just over two weeks after the prosecutors for the appeal had admitted that there were critical pieces of information that hadn't been turned over, defense attorneys released evidence that further suggested Tim's innocence. To date, the defense attorneys had never received any reports suggesting that Tim Masters' DNA had been found on anything. At this point, defense attorneys received permission from the courts to have DNA touch testing done in the Netherlands on evidence that had been found at the scene. Touch testing means if you are forcibly touching somebody, then you are likely to leave skin cells on the clothing. Kath, do you know why the Netherlands... From what I read at the time, they were the ones who were doing this. But prior to that, it had been based on blood. Okay. According to the Netherlands report, there was DNA that had been found on the clothing, but the tested samples did not include Tim Masters' DNA. The DNA results were also confirmed by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. The next day, the prosecutor for the appeal, Don Quick, held a press conference to announce that they were moving to overturn Tim Masters' 1999 murder conviction and were turning their attention to a new suspect that had been identified by the DNA testing in the Netherlands. While District Attorney Quick would not reveal who the DNA sample matched, one of Tim Masters' original defense attorneys confirmed that the suspect was one of Peggy Hetrick's former boyfriends. On January 22, 2008, a Colorado judge vacated Tim's conviction and ordered him released immediately. After almost 10 years in prison, Tim Masters, now 37 years old, was a free man. In 2008, Colorado lawmakers passed a bill requiring investigators to preserve all DNA evidence collected for cases involving conviction for Class 1 felonies or sex offenses for the lifetime of the defendant. 
The bill also required DNA evidence to be preserved for the length of the investigation if charges are not filed. I like that law. Why did it even have to wait until 2008, though, to be in in place? But but you know what? I, I bet you anything a lot of states don't have a law like that. Yeah, you're probably right. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, on February 10th, 2010, the Larimer County Board of Commissioners agreed to pay Tim Masters $4.1 million to settle a wrongful conviction lawsuit he'd filed. Four months later, the city of Fort Collins agreed to pay $5.9 million to settle the same lawsuit for a total of $10 million. Three and a half years after Tim Masters had his conviction vacated, in an announcement on June 28, 2011, then-Colorado Attorney General John Southers formally exonerated Tim Masters and stated that he was no longer a suspect in the 1987 murder of Peggy Hetrick. Southers said in a statement, Pursuant to the mandate from the governor's office, our team undertook a comprehensive review of the entire Hetrick homicide. Our team conducted more than 170 interviews and conducted further DNA analysis. Throughout the past year, the statewide grand jury heard evidence and testimony from numerous witnesses. Based on the testimony, the forensic analysis and the crime scene analysis, the overwhelming conclusion is that Timothy Masters was not involved in the murder of Peggy Hetrick. So, what happened to some of the people accused by the defense of improprieties? Well, as far as Lieutenant Broderick went, in 2010, a Larimer County grand jury indicted him on eight counts of felony first-degree perjury for materially false statements he made pursuant to the arrest and conviction of Tim Masters. One year later, charges were dismissed because the statute of limitations had run. Then, in 2011, a different grand jury in Larimer County re-indicted him on nine counts of perjury, but those were dismissed. In 2013, after three years on paid administrative leave, Broderick resigned to avoid an internal investigation into his handling of the Hetrick murder, and charges against him were dismissed the same year. The 1999 trial of Tim Masters, so the original trial was prosecuted by District Attorneys Terry Gilmore and Jolene Blair. As Kathy mentioned previously, they went on to be elected as judges soon after the trial ended and, of course, you know, made a big campaign out of the fact that they had got this conviction. In an agreement with the Colorado Supreme Court's Office of Attorney Regulation, Gilmore and Blair acknowledged failing to ensure that Tim Masters' defense attorneys received large amounts of the information which had been obtained by the Fort Collins Police Department, including many key pieces indicating Masters' innocence. In addition, the prosecutors failed to gather other information from police despite indications that it existed. Two years later, Judges Gilmore and Blair were voted out of office. Kathy, when Tim Masters, you know, we talked about this lawsuit. It was a federal lawsuit, basically a violation of civil rights. Are you talking about the lawsuit in terms of? The the $10 million lawsuit. uh, So wrongful conviction. Correct. 
But it was more than that. It was it was a violation of civil rights and false imprisonment and all these kind of things. But anyway, all of the defendants were police officers or district attorneys, people who worked in the DA's office. And so they did a motion to dismiss. And the judge in the federal case wrote a very lengthy response to their motion to dismiss. And I just want to quote a couple things. He says, quote, The primary duty of a lawyer engaged in public prosecution is not to convict, but to see that justice is done. The suppression of facts or the secreting of witnesses capable of establishing the innocence of the accused is highly reprehensible. So obviously, attorneys are competitive people. You want to win. But it's about justice and seeking the truth. And ethics. Yes. Oh, totally. And these two were not shining examples of that. So where's Tim Masters now? Five months ago, on September 4th, 2021, Matt Jablow with Colorado's Nine News reported on an unlikely friendship that had developed as a result of the case. On this day, Tim Masters was at the farm of Linda Wheeler Holloway. Linda was once Tim's adversary. She was one of the original homicide detectives investigating the Peggy Hetrick murder and had been the detective who had canvassed the neighborhood and, after interviewing Tim's father, saw Tim as a possible suspect. Linda had brought Tim in for questioning after Peggy Hetrick's murder, and she was also one of the detectives who re-interviewed him five years later in 1992. Remember, this was because one of Tim's former classmates had told police that Tim had known details of the crime that detectives thought only the killer would know. Mm -hmm. Linda said that during this 1992 interview, she had gone into the interrogation carrying an arrest warrant. But here was the tipping point for her. After 12 hours of interrogation, she left thinking she had the wrong guy. And up until that point, Linda said she thought he was the murderer. Just as a quick side note, you read about the original interrogation that occurred when he was 15 years old. Right. And it was super lengthy. I don't remember how lengthy. 15 hours without a parent and without parental consent. And yes, not to mention a lawyer. I'm sure he probably waived his Miranda rights. Probably, but he probably didn't know what they were. Exactly. But you were telling me that the prosecution took bits and pieces of the interview to make it more dramatic. Right. There was an author who had written a book on this And he was saying that he watched every hour of the interrogation. He also watched every hour of the original trial. And he said what the prosecution had done is that the homicide detectives had said to Tim, why did you stab her? And Tim would say, I didn't stab her. Okay, well, if you were going to stab her, where would you stab her? I I didn't stab her. Why Why would I know that? Well, if you were writing a book, like how would you describe the scene? And was going on in questions like that, they finally said... Well, if you were going to write a book, how exactly would you want to describe the scene? And that was the question that Tim answered after literally an hour after the detectives had been interviewing him in the same vein the whole time. Trying to draw out anything that was going to help his case. Right. And so in court in the original trial in 1999, the prosecutor's office showed a truncated version of this tape that showed him asking the question of where did you stab her to Tim then saying, well, if I was going to stab her. Or, well, if I was going to have somebody stabbed, this is how I would do it. And the entire hour in the meantime, they didn't do anything. Wow. And this was 15 hours without food or drink or a bathroom break. That's crazy. 
Linda Wheeler Holloway left the Fort Collins Police Department in 1995, and as we know, the investigation continued, resulting in Tim's arrest in 1998 and conviction in 1999. Linda was working for the Colorado Bureau of Investigation at the time of the trial and had actually been called to testify by the prosecution. She said that while she was on the stand, she openly questioned their case, and at that point was not very popular with the prosecution or law enforcement. I can imagine. (laughs) No kidding. Yeah. Six years later, in 2005, Linda began working with Tim's lawyers as a private investigator, trying to get Tim's conviction overturned. She said she knew that justice had not been served. It turns out that when Tim Masters had his conviction vacated and walked out of a Larimer County courtroom a free man, Linda was right there with him. Tim told Nine News that if it wasn't for Linda, he'd probably still be in prison. I mean, honestly, she had the inside scoop. She was a homicide detective. You know, she was part of the investigation and she knew the prosecutor. She knew all the players. A documentary was done in 2012 called Blackstone's Equation that talked about this whole process that Tim Masters has gone through. Mm -hmm. One of the things that they discussed in here, and it isn't something that I had read, but in the year 2000, there was an A&E Cold Case Files episode that was done on this called Murder Illustrated. Mm Mm-hmm. The episode went through the trial and the conviction of Tim Masters. Actually, they lauded the district attorneys and Dr. Malloy for getting this conviction. When it was overturned, of course, then nine years later, it's actually been pulled from circulation. Oh, interesting. But what I was going to say is there was a man who lived in Colorado who had followed the trial in the newspaper as it was going on in 1999. And when he saw this A&E episode, he realized that there was no evidence. It was only Dr. Malloy talking about his character. I wish I could remember his name, but this man ordered the transcripts from the A&E episode, paid for them himself, and then sent them to Tim Masters in prison. No way. Yes. And it was at this point that Tim Masters wrote the request for new counsel. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that crazy? Wow. So the whole thing got rolling Because this guy saw an A&E episode. Right. And the reason I'm bringing this up is in this news article five months ago, Tim Master says without Linda, he wouldn't be where he is or he'd still be in prison. But in this Blackstone's Equation documentary back in 2012, Tim Masters actually said the same thing about this gentleman who had sent him the transcripts. Wow. Tim Masters now lives in northern Colorado. He said that most days life is good, although he still deals with depression because of everything he went through. I can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean, that seems normal to me, actually, you know. How does that ever go away from you? Ten years in prison? Oh, my God. Peggy Hetrick's murder remains unsolved, and Linda Wheeler Holloway is now working on the case as an investigator for the Cold Case Foundation, a nonprofit organization that investigates unsolved violent crimes. Linda said she believes that Peggy Hetrick's murder will one day be solved and that she will not stop until it is. Thank you for listening. If you liked us. I really hope you liked us. Just recommend (laughs) us to a friend. (laughs) And follow us on our social media at Killer Destinations Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.